I do have a sign-up sheet that I'll put up here on the table. If you don't get our weekly newsletter in Medius Race uh, and are interested in keeping up with what we, what we do, that's the best way to do it. Um, put your name and uh, hometown email address and we'll get it into the, the list and you'll start receiving that weekly. The in Medius Race is basically a compilation of the various things that we produce during the course of each week. Uh, we put out a couple of podcasts every week. Uh, we have uh, a video that uh, goes up on our YouTube channel every week. We have a couple of articles on our website, and uh, those are all linked in the in the uh, newsletter. And then there's news about upcoming courses and events. So the, if you want to keep up with what we're doing, that's the best way to do it. You don't have to visit the website and try to find updates because you get an update to your mailbox. Um, and conveniently deletable if you just don't have time to read the read the newsletter. So that'll be up here. Uh, sign up as you, as you like. Um, I think that um, we, we start out uh, Theopolis, thinking again, repeating what I said yesterday, but we start out thinking of it as an educational ministry and training for church leaders, both pastors and lay leaders. Uh, and um, I thought of it mainly as a, as a teaching institute, but uh, realized over the course of a number of years that uh, it's as much a matter of gathering people in order to teach them in that gathering and networking and formation of a community of Theopolis followers, students, teachers uh, is an, a, a key part of what we do. Uh, and that's been particularly striking to us, of course, over the course of 2020 when we weren't able to do courses for about six months. We, uh, we did a course in, in March of 2020 just before lockdowns began. We did a week-long course in Birmingham, uh, and then uh, had to shut down. We canceled everything for the next six months or so. And uh, uh, getting back to courses like this, where we're actually <clears throat> actually face-to-face -face with people, have time to share meals together, have time to get to know each other over cups of coffee, uh, and all the things that happen in the, in the, dead, the, the uh, supposedly dead times of the course, uh, that's been such a, uh, a blessing to have that, be able to get back to that. And um, again, I, I think of that as a, a, a crucial part of what we're trying to accomplish. Bring people together into the same place so that uh, they can get to know each other and learn from each other as much as they're learning from Theopolis instructors. Uh, we, we offer a variety of different kinds of instruction. We do a lot of online, <clears throat> the stuff that I was describing, we have... Uh, um, a uh, internet presence on our website, on YouTube. We've got a, a podcast. Um, we do one new podcast every week uh, with, a, with a team of uh, contributors, and then uh, we, we're uh, putting up uh, old lectures by Jim Jordan uh, once a week. Uh, we, we went through his, uh, I don't know, 80 or 90 lecture series on the life of Jacob. We, we covered those over the last uh, year and a half or so. Uh, and uh, uh, so those are, the, those are the podcasts we put out, videos that are uh, typically uh, Bible-oriented videos. I did a series of short videos on Revelation uh, recently, uh, and those are all available on our YouTube site, YouTube channel. Uh, Alistair Roberts, who is one of our uh, instructors, is currently doing a, an overview of the tabernacle and the symbolism of the tabernacle that's on our YouTube channel. Uh, so those are the kinds of things we, we tend to cover on, on uh, YouTube. And then uh, one of the, one of the uh, I think, uh, 
one of the successful things we've done as far as written material, we started a series of Theopolis conversations a couple years ago, uh, which is a, is a sponsored, um, invited debate, as it were. We have a, uh, we take, we have disc, uh, think of a topic, find somebody who can write on the topic uh, at some length. We invite respondents to respond to the initial essay, and then the, the original essayist get to, gets to uh, respond to his critics and respondents at the end. So we, we do about once a month or one, once every month and a half, we're doing a, a cycle of connected essays like that. Um, and that's, that's been good because we brought in writers who are not part of our uh, immediate, uh, our immediate world. Uh, we've been able to, uh, <clears throat> we had a, 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 a conversation about uh, poetry. Poetry in the news was the, what we called it recently. And we were able to get a couple of uh, uh, fairly major American poets to agree to contribute. Uh, James, uh, James Matthew Wilson wrote the starter essay, and then uh, uh, Scott Cairns, a Catholic poet, contributed to it. And so that's been, a, that's been great to have our own people interacting with people of that kind of caliber, and having them on our website attracts new readers. Uh, I think the conversations have been a real success, and, uh, uh, and also have made Theopolis a place where there's actually civil conversation going on about important topics. You know, that, that doesn't always happen. I, you may not know this, but that doesn't always happen on the internet. Um, so make, creating that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, circumscribed space where people can debate um, in, a, in a kind of fraternal and uh, civil atmosphere has been uh, really, really great. The other thing we started doing uh, just this past year, for obvious reasons, in 2020, we started doing online courses. We've only done a handful of them so far. Um, Alistair Roberts has caught, taught a couple of courses. He taught a course on the law. For These are uh, meet once a week for a couple hours for six weeks. Uh, usually, typically, there isn't any, there isn't any, uh, uh, there aren't any assignments. So you just show up to the Zoom call and uh, sit in and listen and discuss. Um, he did one on uh, biblical theology, the law. He did one on Sabbath. Um, we have Esther Meek, Meeks, who is a uh, Christian philosopher, doing a course right now, uh, online course on, uh, it's called Theopolis Workshops, on uh, artistry. She's done books on uh, epistemology, knowing, uh, and uh, she's currently doing a, a, a short course on artistry as a, art, not just as m making beautiful things, but art as an as a category for thinking about how we engage the world just in general. We're, artistry is part of the way we in, in, interact with the world, whether we're artists in the technical sense or not. Um, so uh, those have been really good for a variety of, I should say, we, we have some coming up, but we're gonna have more in the fall. Um, let's see, what do we have coming up first? Uh, uh, we're gonna try to do more of those workshops in the fall. Um, uh, James B. John, who is one of our regular podcast contributors is going to uh, do a short uh, workshop on the book of Judges. Um, if you don't know James um, and you're interested in biblical theology, find James on Twitter. Um, there's, uh, I, I've never seen anybody do the kind of, I've never seen thread, Twitter threads from anybody else that I follow that are like 30 or 40 posts long. Uh, very few people that I know that 
post with Hebrew in the tweet. Uh, he just does amazing biblical theology work. Uh, he's done some things on the, uh, the uh, genealogies of Jesus and the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke, trying to show that they're harmonious and uh, not, not contradictory. Uh, and uh, uh, James is uh, quite brilliant. We're really happy to have him on our podcast. And he's going to teach a course on Judges in, uh, in the fall. And then uh, uh, Jerry Boyer, who is a, a friend of Theopolis, uh, he does economic research. He's written a, book, a recent book called uh, The Makers and the Takers uh, that uh, is uh, a, a study of the, what he calls the economics of Jesus. And he's done some really interesting research uh, looking at the Gospels and how Jesus interacts with different economic classes. Uh, and uh, uh, so he'll be teaching uh, something on economics or business, maybe teaching through his book. We haven't, we haven't decided exactly what he's going to do, but uh, Jerry is a fascinating person and, uh, and uh, has been kind of basting, his mind has been basting in Jim Jordan for 30 years. So, uh, and it comes out in his economic and financial analysis. He, he does financial research for background research for, uh, he's not a financial advisor, but he does background economic research for financial advisors. Uh, so that'll be a kind of new departure. When it'll be uh, biblically, sh biblically shaped and biblically informed, but it's going to be on uh, economics or business. So uh, uh, if you get the newsletter, you can keep track of when those uh, workshops are coming up and you can join in. One of the benefits of the workshops has been that we've been uh, able to connect with people that can't make it to a course like this um, or a week, don't have time to take a week off and come to Birmingham for a week-long course, uh, which is our, that we do a, several week-long courses in uh, Birmingham every year. Um, and uh, so people who aren't, don't have the opportunity to do that uh, because they have real jobs um, or because they live uh, in some other country and especially in 2020, they aren't able to travel and come visit us. So the workshops have given us an opportunity to have, we had one workshop, the Sabbath workshop, I think the majority of our students were not in the US. We had several Canadians, a number of Germans showed up. Um, we had a couple of Kenyans, uh, a Brazilian. Uh, Theopolis has quite a, uh, uh, strangely, surprisingly has, a, has quite a following in, uh, in Brazil. There's a couple of websites, Portuguese, websites coming out of Brazil that are basically clones of the Theopolis website. They take everything that we publish on our website with our permission and just translate them and put them up in Portuguese. Um, so that's been a real, uh, a great outlet for us, which we hadn't had before. So um, I've been resisting doing online courses because you don't have the kinds of interactions that you have in a live course, as I've been talking about, but there are benefits to it. So we're going to keep doing those and uh, try to do probably try to do uh, six or eight uh, beginning in the fall and then through the, the following spring, starting in the fall of 2021. Um, we do have an a, a intensive course coming up in just a couple of weeks. Uh, this will be on death and dying. Uh, it's uh, being taught by a palliative care doctor uh, who is uh, connected with St. Louis University. And uh, he also has a PhD in ethics. So he's got the He's got training both in theological ethics and in uh, medicine. He's a ruling elder at, the, at a PCA church in St. Louis uh, where Jeff Myers, one of our uh, regular instructors, is pastor. Uh, his name is Kimball Cornu. 
and uh, Kimball will be in Birmingham for a week in uh, the first part of May, uh, talking about death and dying from the perspective, an ethical perspective, how, do, how should Christians think about the, the decisions that everyone has to make about death and dying, uh, and the very, you know, think through the various options that we have. Obviously, all kinds of, all kinds of medical and uh, other kinds of pressures come on people when they are facing, uh, 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 you know, uh, f- facing death, when you have a, an older relative who is declining, you have all kinds of decisions to make about care, uh, and how do you sort through those? That's that'll be part of what he's trying to, trying to, uh, uh, part of what he's instructing us about. So, if you have another few days in May, come down and see us in Birmingham. I also want to finally want to talk about our fellows program. Our kind of flagship program is a uh, six-month program uh, that's called the uh, Theopolis Fellows Program. That six months is um, only partly in person in in uh, Birmingham. We have a week and a half session in July and then another week session the following January. Um, and uh, in between we do, uh, uh, I've, I've learned from Alistair to say fortnightly Zoom sessions. Uh, that means every two weeks, in case you didn't, didn't follow that. So uh, from August through December we're doing uh, twice a month Zoom sessions with the students. Um, but uh, the, the, the fellows program is uh, the, the, the main program that we offer. If, uh, if you want to get kind of the, uh, everything that Theopolis has, a, a, a survey of the Bible is part of it, uh, in-depth studies of uh, liturgical theology is part of it, uh, the liturgical experience that we're having a little taste of here is part of it, learning psalms, um, all of that is combined in that, that six-month program. Uh, we are currently have about uh, 10 students uh, admitted to the program for 2021 into 2022, which is an, an increase over the last time we were able to do this. And we have a couple of applicants, uh, applications that are in process. So uh, it's looking like we'll probably have 12 to 15 students, which is a, a great number for us. That, uh, it's a uh, nearly double what we had in the first first time we did the program in this form. Um, this is a this is not just for pastors. We have pastors that come through it. Uh, some uh, somebody recently called Theopolis a finishing school for pastors, which is I think is a, a good way to say it. It's not a it, we don't pretend to offer a uh, seminary program. Uh, we're not covering everything that you would want to get from a seminary program. We don't teach languages, for example, or church history. Um, it's just not, we don't have, it's, we're not taking the time to do that. We don't have people that are particularly skilled in doing that. But we have, um, a biblical theology is one of our strengths, so we're uh, pastors who want to learn more about the Bible and learn to read the Bible more deeply will come to Theopolis for finishing school. Uh, and uh, if they, they're going through a kind of liturgical transition uh, and want to learn, learn more about the biblical, historical, theological rationale for uh, the kind of worship that we are uh, advocating, uh, then again, it's a kind of finishing school for pastors. But it's not just for pastors. That's what I started uh, emphasizing. It's not just for pastors. Uh, Men and women are uh, free to apply to the program. Uh, There's, uh, uh, we have this, I think this round we're gonna have uh, mostly not pastors or aspiring pastors. Uh, we have uh, 
just lay people in the church who want to learn more about the Bible and want to have some role in helping their church in some fashion. And uh, the, the, the fellows program is a way for them to, to get some training in order to do that. So there's more information about that on the website and application is accessible through the website uh, that uh, will be uh, uh, closing applications for the 2021-2022 year um, in the next uh, month or so. So if you're interested or you know anybody else who's interested, who might be interested, then point them in our direction. And uh, we do have some time before uh, we close out applications. All right. Well, uh, I'll say this, too, because, uh, you know, uh, I'm supposed to be fundraising. Uh, we do rely on donations. Uh, we have churches supporting us, but uh, by and large, most of our uh, income comes from individual donors. Uh, we had uh, an, a surprisingly good year financially in 2020. Uh, went from having a sizable deficit in the previous year to a sizable surplus in 2020 for reasons that uh, don't make any sense to me. Um, I think uh, the message to me is the less you do, the more people like you, and they'll pay us not to do anything. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the message I'm supposed to take. I don't know. Um, there are, uh, uh, there's a, virtually every page of the website has a, has a give button on it, so you won't have any pr trouble finding ways to, ways to donate if you're interested in doing that. Uh, and the website is the easiest way to make a donation if you're, if you're wanting to do that. Okay, uh, today we're going to do a couple of topics. Uh, this morning we're going to cover sacrifice, and then uh, we'll take a break, and then we'll go over some of the readings that uh, pertain to this topic in some fashion. And then this afternoon we're going to talk about liturgical time, and again have, uh, have some time after a lecture for discussion of some of the readings. Uh, before I begin, let me pray, ask the Lord's blessing on us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for that you've gathered us together, that you've brought us here to study together, to fellowship together, to get to know one another, uh, to uh, learn more of your word, and to learn how to worship you. Uh, we pray that you would teach us to worship you as you've directed, that you would conform our worship to your word, confirm our hearts by your spirit to everything that you've revealed to us. And we pray this uh, during this session this morning that you would give us clarity and uh, that you would help us to uh, uh, learn and to, to, uh, to be clear about uh, how, how we are to offer you a sacrifice of praise uh, in order to glorify our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Let me begin by reviewing the overall uh, framework that I'm operating in. Remember, at the beginning yesterday, I said I'm going to talk about creation, culture, and liturgy. And I did. I didn't always call attention to the fact that I was talking about creation, culture, and liturgy, but I was. Um, on the creation side of things, my argument has been and will continue to be that uh, there, is, there are what we, we can think of as liturgical elements and built into creation. Liturgy is not something that's alien to the nature of things. Well, the liturgy that we do as an action in church is not a stepping away from reality, but it's a kind of concentration of things that are happening 
realities that characterize life in general. Uh, so, for example, we talked yesterday about place. We, we all exist in places. We all exist in different spaces. Our worlds are organized spatially. And uh, in worship, uh, we have... Uh, I, I, I'm talking about creation. I should uh, step back. I, I started that wrong. Creation, God created a world that is uh, liturgical. He created a world that's a temple. I, I argued for that yesterday. Uh, so when we gather together in order to worship uh, as, a, as a specific act within the church, that's not, that's not something that's outside of the realm of the life in the world because the world itself is a temple of the living God. So uh, God spoke the world into existence. God created us as speaking beings. Dialogue is part of uh, the purpose of creation, created human beings especially. Human history is a matter of dialoguing with God. God speaking and human beings responding, whether faithfully or not unfaithfully. And so when we come into worship, and on Sunday morning, there's this dialogue going on within worship, again, and, and we're speaking God's words uh, to one another. We're speaking God's words to God. Uh, God is speaking his words to us through uh, a minister. Um, that, uh, that's, again, is something that's, part, that's built into creation. That's not a, that's not a, a removal from creation that's what's always going on. There's always, the word of God is always preceding us. We're always responding to us, responding to it. So there's that link between creation as a liturgical reality and our uh, uh, conscious directed liturgies that we, uh, that we do in church. Also, uh, more implicitly, I think, yesterday was talking about culture. Um, so God created a, a temple space and human beings work in the world to create their own spaces, to carve out spaces within the world that God has made. Uh, and because of human sin, those spaces can be distorted and perverted. Uh, I made brief reference to the, the way that the, the, uh, early, the early history of the city in the Bible, uh, Cain's city, uh, the Tower of Babel, and the, and the city that surrounds it, uh, Sodom, Egypt. Uh, you have... Uh, Later on, you have Babylon, uh, at least a, a, what Babylon becomes as a fallen city. So you have organizations of space, places that are set up by human beings within the world. Uh, because of human sin, these are corrupted and distorted. And instead of uh, building in a way that brings honor to God, uh, human beings build in a way that defies God, and human beings build in a way that... Uh, that uh, 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 divides human beings that creates uh, that uh, uh, that creates uh, that cultivates and, and encourages perversion rather than faithfulness. So when the when uh, uh, and the same thing is true in, of language. Language is a cultural phenomenon. We're created as linguistic beings, but then we use language in cultural activities. Language is, as I said yesterday, the the fundamental common practice that any culture has. And it's the common practice that enables all other common practices. If we couldn't communicate with it, one another, then we couldn't do anything. Uh, you know, even 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 if you work, uh, even if you're working at home before a computer screen, uh, you're still communicating. You're still using language. You have to you have to talk to your supervisor at times. And what you're doing on the computer is probably kind of communication, a kind of language itself, uh, that's designed to. 
uh, create and uh, create something that uh, can be useful, used by other people. So everything we do, uh, all all interpersonal re interpersonal relations are mediated through language. All cultural activities require language. We have to we we communicate in order to have in order to have common projects. But human beings have distorted language because of our sin. We looked a little bit at Genesis three and how Adam, confronted by God, immediately begins using words to accuse rather than confess, uh, to to uh, uh, deflect blame rather than to ex accept responsibility. Uh, and uh, so human language has been distorted from the beginning. Again, the Tower of Babel looms large here. Uh, because of the, because of the uh, rebellion at Babel, human languages are confused and uh, human beings are, are scattered. They can't communicate with each other. If you can't communicate with each other, you can't continue the common project of building a city and a tower. You can't finish Babel if you're not able to communicate uh, with each other. So uh, language and space are cultural activities and cultural facts, but they get distorted and perverted by sin. And uh, the liturgy is intended to be a restoration to proper usage. It restores language to its proper use. Language is designed for communication among human beings. It's designed for communication with God. It's designed for prayer and praise. Uh, and in the liturgy, that's actually happening. Language is being used as, as it's created to be used. So the liturgy is, a, is itself a transformation of culture, not just a source for the transformation of culture, but is itself a transformation of culture. And then we spent a good bit of time talking about liturgical space and how uh, we, we take the, the materials of the world and devote them to uh, the worship of God, a place for, where God is worshiped. That, again, is a, 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 a cultural artifact, a church is a cultural artifact that's where culture has been redirected toward the worship and service and honor of God. So that's the big framework that I've been talking about. I want to say similar things about uh, sacrifice and time. That is, I want to say that sacrifice is built into creation, not just something that is imposed on the world, but it, uh, the way that uh, the, the Bible describes the original formation of creation, there are sacrificial patterns that are already going on in the way God creates the world. And of course, God creates a world that is, uh, has a temporal, a temporal rhythm to it, a complex temporal rhythm. Uh, and uh, so sacrifice and, and time, of course, are part of creation. I'm going to argue that uh, God has created a world where uh, liturgical, uh, liturgical sacrifice, as I'll describe it, in a second, there's, a, there's this kind of liturgical sacrificial pattern that's part of the original creation. And liturgical time, God has created a world where time itself is liturgical. It's not just litur liturgical time imposed on natural time. But God has created a world that, uh, where uh, the keeping of uh, appointments with God is part of the purpose of time. Uh, that's why God created timekeepers, so that we can keep appointments with God. But this morning... Sacrifice. We might think, with good reason, that the first sacrifice in the Bible is offered, uh, sacrifice in the Bible are offered by Cain and Abel. Uh, and that's true in the sense that these, those are the first human beings that offer things that are explicitly described in sacrificial terms as offerings. Both Cain and Abel offer what uh, the, in the Hebrew is called a minchah. A minchah is a tribute offering 
The word means tribute in uh, context outside of worship contexts. Um, and in, the, in Leviticus, mincha is used to describe the grain offering. Uh, so you have animal offerings of various sorts. We'll talk about those a little bit later this morning. You have animal offerings of various sorts, but then you also have offerings that are just made of grain and oil uh, and salt and then have some frankincense put over it. And uh, those are called mincha. So the word translated as grain offering in Leviticus 2, doesn't, the word doesn't actually have anything to do with grain. It's, uh, the word means tribute. Um, so Cain and Abel are the first ones to offer a named kind of offering, both of them offering a minka, even though, uh, of course, Cain is offering grain products, like the later minka, Abel is offering a minka that involves an animal. But I think we actually have a, a, a root of sacrifice prior to that. That's in Genesis 4. And I think that we already have a kind of sacrificial procedure. There's certain sacrificial procedures that are already embedded in the world, beginning in Genesis 1. And running through Genesis 2, and then in a couple of senses in Genesis 3. Um, you, can, you can think about how think about how the creation, especially the first half of the creation week, is organized. Uh, it's often described as a process of forming, followed by filling, as we talked about yesterday. Uh, but if you look at the first three days of creation, each of those first three days, the forming involves some kind of division. God separates things. God says, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Then he assigns names to the different things. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. So he makes light, he tears light and darkness apart, he separates them, and then he sets them up in this rhythm of night and day alternating back and forth, described in Genesis 1 as evening and morning one day. But that alternation of light and darkness, these two separated things are harmonized, they're not made into one thing, but they're harmonized to form a day. The light time, which is uh, narrowly described as day, and the dark time, which is described as night, they form together one entity, which is called a day. Uh, and then God does a similar kind of, again, there's a separation in the second day. God said, let there be an expanse in the middle of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, the firmament, and separated the waters which were below the ex expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening in the morning a second day. So the second day is also a day of separation. Remember that after the initial creation, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the earth is form and void, and it's watery. It's a deep. Uh, apparently, land is submerged by the water that covers the earth. Um, but now God is going to separate uh, waters from waters, and he puts a firmament that separates waters above, above that firmament, the heavenly waters, from the earthly waters below, and the firmament makes that separation permanent or semi-permanent. I mean, there are times when God rips the firmament and comes down. There are times when the firmament collapses. Hailstorms in the Bible are firmament-collapsing events. The firmament is, is imagined as a kind of uh, solid dome, an ice dome over the world, and we have a massive hailstorm. That means that heaven is coming down to earth. Heaven is crashing down through, uh, through the firmament and down toward the earth. Um, 
But in the original creation, you have these two things separated above and below. God is separating, and then heaven and earth are in some kind of relationship. They're not reunited. Day and night are not reunited. But they're, they're set up in this kind of a duality uh, that uh, uh, even though they're separated, they have this kind of uni- unity. Uh, then uh, the Lord says, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. He called the dry land earth and the gallery and the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So again, an act of separation in the third day. So when he, God forms a three-decker universe of heaven above, earth beneath, and waters under the earth by the various acts of separation. But at each point, and in the, in the total, at the end of that, those three days, at each point, he's putting the separated things into some kind of harmony or larger unity. And then at the end of the three days, he's created this one cosmos that is made up of these different separated uh, zones. Um, that's a kind of sacrificial procedure. You think about what happens to an animal when it's brought into a sanctuary in the Old Testament. Uh, the animal is brought uh, by the worshiper. Uh, the worshiper leans his hand on the head of the animal and slaughters the animal. And then the animal is dismembered. Forget that Sunday school picture where you've got a whole animal tied up to the altar. It's not what they did. Every animal that's placed on the altar, it's, there's already fire burning there. Every animal that's placed on the altar is in pieces, as uh, Leviticus 1 indicated that I read at uh, Matins. You divide it into its pieces, and then you put the pieces, sometimes in a very particular order, into the altar, into the fire that's on the wood that's on the altar. And then the animal's stacked up on top of that. Uh, so you have this animal that's separated, and then you put him in, reassemble him in the altar, and the animal is turned to smoke, and he becomes this reunited thing that goes up to God as a sweet-smelling savor. Uh, what's happening in every sacrifice is a separation and then a kind of reunion, uh, a separation and a kind of glorification by that reunion, because that's happening already in the creation week when God does these separations and then puts these separated things into some kind of relationship. Uh, each stage of that is an advance on the previous stage. Um, every day makes the world more glorious than it was before. A world of watery darkness is, uh, God never calls it good, uh, but that's a, that's a creation of God. That's the first creation of God. A world with light is better. And a world that alternates between light and darkness is good. But a world that has waters above and below, that has separated those waters, is better. Day two is better than day one. Day three is better than day two. Day four is better than day three. And so on through the creation week. Each time God separates and then reunites and harmonizes things, there's an act of glorification that's going on. So creation is, I think, is the root of all of the sacrificial procedures that we have throughout the Bible. These separations and reunions that take place in in Israelite worship are being anticipated. Those are those are kind those are kind of replication, a ritual replication of what God's doing in the in the original creation. I think we have another indication of a sacrificial procedure in the creation of Eve. Uh, in Genesis 2. 
beginning in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. A couple things about that. Of course, we have this, this interrupts the rhythm of the, of the uh, previous chapter. Uh, light, that's good. Darkness and light alternating, that's good. Uh, separation of waters, dry land appearing, that's good. Plants coming up, that's good. Fish in the sea, that's good. Heavenly lights in the light, that's good. Good, 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 so on. And then not good uh, for the man to be alone. This, this is uh, the one thing that's designated as not being good in the original form of creation. Uh, and God is going to make a helper uh, suitable to, uh, appropriate to, uh, corresponding to Adam. Uh, and given the setting, I think this is, uh, uh, what, what is, why does he need this partner? He's a partner partly because he's supposed to fill the earth, and he's not an amoeba, so he can't just subdivide and make, make new man by just uh, subdividing, and he can't cut off the tip of his finger and that become a man. That's not the way he's built. He needs a, he needs a partner to, uh, to repopulate and to, to fill the earth, to populate the earth. Uh, he needs a partner in order to subdue the earth. That's part of the commission that's given to man, male and female, in Genesis 1, 27, 1, 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky. Adam's going to rule. He's going to have Eve as his queen, queen of creation at his right hand. Uh, he needs a partner in that. Uh, but remember what we talked about yesterday with the setting of the garden. This is taking place in the garden. Adam's task in the garden is a priestly task. That's what Adam has just been told, that he is supposed to dress and keep the garden Guard and keep the garden. That's in Genesis 2.15. And now he's given a partner. And the first setting where the partner is going to be uh, a partner is this sanctuary setting of, uh, of the garden. He needs a liturgical partner. He needs a liturgical... Um, uh, he needs somebody to uh, uh, assist or to share in the worship of God. I think that's the... Uh, that's the narrow setting of Genesis 2. That's why Eve is created, um, to be the responding voice to Adam. Uh, Jim Jordan likes to say, women are made to talk back to men. <laughs> well, you knew that. If you're married, you already knew that. Women do talk back to men, but now you know that's why women exist. That's why God created them, okay? to glorify what men say. Adam's going to speak Eve's going to speak back. You have that, uh, that kind of dialogue. And I think in, in Genesis 2, that's, the set, that's primarily the liturgical setting. So God decides he needs a helper suitable to him. He needs somebody that corresponds to him that's like him and yet different. Uh, the, the obvious thing to do, obvious thing to do, is to get down on the earth again and to form a woman from the ground and breathe into her nostrils the breath of life. And then you've got another human being corresponding to Adam. Uh, but of course, that's not how God creates Eve. Instead, he goes through this very uh, uh, kind of violent process. In verse 21, Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place, and the Lord God fashioned it into, into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. 
And for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay. So what's happened, what's happened during, in that process? Uh, you could say many things are going on, but one thing that's going on is you have another act of separation, like you had in Genesis 1. This is how the cosmos is created. Now this is how human beings are being created. You have the one man, Adam, with Eve separated, or a rib, <coughs> a rib separated, from which he builds the woman. And then the goal of this is to reunite them, just as the separations of Genesis 1 are for the, uh, uh, in order to reunite or to harmonize the two things that have been separated. That's what's happening to man and woman. <coughs> Excuse me. So God creates Eve through a kind of process, of, a kind of sacrificial process. Adam is going through the kinds of experience. He goes into a deep sleep, which is uh, a near-death sleep. He's divided in two, and then he's reunited with the other who is made from the rib that was taken from him. That uh, near-death separation and reunion is the, uh, the uh, general form of sacrifice. So God creates Eve through this, uh, which... I think it uh, also fits with the, the idea that the sacrifice is a path toward glorification. Uh, the woman is the glory of the man, Paul says. And when Adam is, uh, Adam is made glorious, when he receives his bride, he's glorified. He's made more glorious because his, uh, Eve is the glory of Adam. She's, the, she's his crown, as Proverbs says. And so Adam now, has, uh, now is... Uh, uh, further along the way to becoming a king because he now has a queen. He's been crowned by his, by his wife. Uh, so there's a glorification going on here as well. There's a separation, a reunion in, as one flesh, and that separation reunion takes Adam from one stage of glory into another stage of glory. That is the, that is the movement of sacrifice. Sacrifice, throughout the Bible, sacrifice is a movement of uh, death, to new life, not just death, but death leading to new life. It's a process of separation that leads to reunion, not just the separation. And it's a death, resurrection, separation, reunion that is a process of glorification. Uh, before we look at a couple other things in Genesis 3, I want to uh, uh, pound on that point a little bit because that is not the way that uh, historically Christians have thought about sacrifice. Uh, Christians have tended to think about sacrifice as primarily having to do with the, with the violent act of, uh, uh, of slaughter. Sacrifice means slaughter. And that's true, you, unless you have a grain offering. Uh, all of the animal offerings, you don't put a live animal on the altar. You kill him and dismember him. But that's not the end of the sacrificial procedure. If you killed and dismembered an animal, you still haven't done a sacrifice. It's only when the animal is put on the altar, turned into smoke. I think that's, a, that's, not, a, that's not a sign of punishment or uh, destruction. That's a sign of glorification and transformation. The animal is put, put in the altar as flesh and turned into smoke and ascends to God in a new form, uh, in a glorified form uh, that enables him to uh, enter, uh, enter, into, uh, enter before the Lord on behalf of the worshiper. So uh, we'll talk about some of the uh, discussions of Eucharistic sacrifice uh, when we get to the uh, discussion time later this morning. 
Uh, but I think one of the things that has distorted all of those discussions is a, uh, a narrow understanding of what sacrifice is. The question that Protestants and Catholics debate about is whether Jesus is dying again at the Lord's table. And Catholics, uh, we think Catholics say yes, uh, and Protestants say no. But that's just, that's the wrong question, because that's not all that happens in sacrifice. The question really should be, is, is the Lord's Supper, is the Eucharist, uh, a, a movement through death into new life? Is it a movement of glorification? And if it is, if it has that kind of pattern, then uh, we can speak of it as a sacrifice in the biblical sense and still uh, not say not uh, fall into the errors of saying that uh, Jesus is somehow being re-sacrificed. Okay, we'll come back to that uh, later, but I'm, I wanted to highlight at least that point. A couple other things that happen in Genesis uh, 1 through 3, before Cain and Abel actually uh, offer the first named sacrifices uh, that uh, uh, contribute to our understanding of what sacrifice is. After the fall, of course, as soon as Adam and Eve sin, they're ashamed, and so they try to cover their shame by sewing, sewing fig leaves together. The Lord um, is uh, not impressed with the fig leaves, dissatisfied with the fig leaves, and so after he pronounces the curses, verse 21 says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Uh, it's been a long-standing uh, interpretation to say that this is the first animal sacrifice in the Bible, and it's performed by Yahweh. Uh, some of the church fathers say this. Jonathan Edwards says this, uh, that the Lord, where did he get the garments of skin? You know, did he speak them into existence? He could have. Um, but uh, the, uh, the assumption is that he got garments of skin by some kind of sacrificial procedure, by uh, removing the skin from an animal and putting the skin on Adam and Eve and clothing them. Uh, this, if this is the first sacrifice, then that again shows us something important about the nature of sacrifice. Sacrifice is for the sake of covering. The aim of sacrifice is to provide cover for us. Uh, that's really the... That's really the uh, root meaning of the word atonement, kafar, in the Old Testament, uh, which in uh, outside of the uh, outside of the context of talking about forgiveness of sin or sacrifice, means to cover the uh, the, uh, the the Noah kafard the ark with with pitch. That's the same verb. He covers it over, but it's the verb that means that's later used to describe uh, atonement. Atonement, in, uh, atonement comes to mean much more than just covering, but atonement at a, at a fundamental level means covering. That's what the Lord is doing. Um, covering Adam and Eve, in, in one sense, a demotion, right? They're, they're made as the image of God, and now they're going out of the garden looking like animals with animal skin on them. After all, they've listened not to the word of the Lord, but they've listened to the word of a serpent. They've bowed to the serpent, and they've kind of lowered themselves on the scale of being, if you want to use that kind of idea. They've uh, submitted themselves to a beast, and so they become bestial. And so the animal skins, the garments of skin, are appropriate garb for them to wear as they go out of the garden. Uh, but that's also the beginning of a theme that we have going through Genesis of clothing and robes and garments as, uh, as uh, matters of glorification, as symbols of glorification. And particularly when you get to the, right to the end of Genesis, where Joseph, Joseph's entire life 
is about uh, receiving and losing different robes. His father gives him a robe. His brothers take it off. Potiphar elevates him uh, in his house. And then Potiphar's wife rips off his his, his robe and he goes into prison. Then he's elevated in prison. Eventually he comes out of prison and he's elevated and given royal robes by Pharaoh his final, his final glorification. Uh, so robes are not just, uh, I think the, the skins here are not just about the demotion of Adam and Eve because of their submission to the serpent, uh, but they're also uh, have, have this uh, aspect of uh, preparing them or elevating them to carry out their uh, royal tasks out, outside of the garden. And then one last thing, uh, uh, Genesis 3 ends with this. So the Lord God drove man out, and uh, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way into the tree, to the tree of life. So we talked about this yesterday, the eastward orientation of the garden, the, uh, the opening of the garden, the door of the garden, if you will. The garden is somehow in an enclosed space. Excuse me. And there's, there are pathways in that can be guarded by cherubim. Uh, and they're guarding them with flaming swords uh, to keep Adam out. <clears throat> so um, uh, keep them keep him specifically from the tree of life. Um, suppose Adam wants to get to the tree of life. How does he get there? He wants to get back into the garden. Maybe he can sneak by cherubim. When Ezekiel sees the cherubim, they're full of eyes, like Argos. Uh, probably not going to sneak past them. They're going to they're spot you as you try to sneak past them. You can make a rush for it. You see the tree of life just, just over there. You can make a rush for it, try to get past them. Uh, but they're pretty attentive, and they're quick, and you're going to get cut to pieces and burned on your way to the tree of life. That should sound familiar. If you want to re-enter Eden, that's the way you do it. You want to re-enter Eden, you need to be cut down with a sword and you need to be burned. You need to go past through the flaming sword of the cherubim in order to get into the Lord's presence and receive the life that he has to offer. And I think Genesis 3.24 is kind of the setup for the entire sacrificial system that that exists throughout the entire Old Testament because the entire sacrificial system is about returning to the presence of God returning to the presence of God in order to eat, drink, and rejoice in his presence. You want to get into the presence of God to receive food that he has to offer. But in order to get in there, you've got to get by the cherubim. And the only way to do that is to die and rise again. Okay? If, if you're sure you can do that, you can, you, you can try to get by the cherubim, the cherubim kill you, and you're, if you're pretty confident that you'll rise again, then you can, you can make it. Or you can send a substitute. That's what the sacrificial, procedure, sacrificial procedures are. It's a substitute passing through the guardian cherubim, suffering the sword and fire that you should suffer in order to allow you to come near, not all the way into the Lord's presence, but come nearer, near enough to eat, drink, and rejoice in, before the Lord. Uh, sacrifice is a gate liturgy. It's an entry liturgy. It's a way of getting back into Eden or the 
reconstituted architectural Edens that, uh, that are the tabernacle and the temple. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a crucial part of what, uh, what sacrifice is. So we, from those, those parts of Genesis 1 through 3, we have uh, some basic idea of what sacrifice is all about, even before we get to the first uh, overt mention of sacrifice in Genesis 4, uh, which are the minka, the minkot of Cain and Abel. Uh, we have sacrifice as division and reunion. Uh, and that modulates into sacrifice as a kind of death and resurrection. Sacrifice involving glorification. Sacrifice, uh, I didn't stress this, but uh, if Eve's creation is a kind of sacrificial procedure, then the first, even before God slaughters an animal and brings the skins to Adam and Eve, uh, Adam has been cut into. Adam's the first, he's the one who, he's the first, uh, the first creature to go through surgery. Uh, or to suffer some kind of wound. Uh, the first, in other words, the first sacrifice is a human sacrifice. That's foundational to the, sac- the whole concept of sacrifice. All of the, all of the animal sacrifices are symbolic sacrifices because what God wants is an utterly devoted, perfect, blemishless human being. That's the only kind of sacrifice that's going to get by the cherubim and be able to uh, enjoy the presence of God forever. So human sacrifice is foundational. Sacrifice is a covering. We saw that in Genesis 3.21. And then uh, sacrifice is a way to enter into the Garden of Eden uh, in some, uh, to to draw nearer to God through a substitute uh, by sending the substitute to undergo the, the, uh, the sword and the fire of the cherubim. Um, so all that's in place and informs our understanding of the, the, the uh, procedures of sacrifice that we have following that. Um, we have various kinds of sacrifices that are mentioned prior to the Exodus. The minkah that I mentioned here with Cain and Abel is the first. Um, Noah is the first to offer what's uh, described in the Bible as an ascension offering. I translated it that way in reading uh, Leviticus 1. It's translated as burnt offering or whole burnt offering in your Bibles, but the, the Hebrew word is olah, uh, which is from a verb Allah, which means to ascend or to go up. And uh, there's nothing in the word that connotes burnt, burning or offering or wholeness. Uh, it, uh, it means something that goes up. And I think uh, uh, much better to translate it as ascension offering than uh, as whole burnt offering. So Noah is the first to offer that kind of offering. Noah is a new and glorified Adam. uh, And uh, the kind of offering he offers is a sign of his ascent and his glorification, his installment as a a kind of king uh, above and beyond where Adam had been placed at the beginning. Uh, Noah drinks wine, for example. Noah uh, is uh, given permission to enforce... um, enforce capital punishment. Um, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made him. Adam didn't get that, get that instruction, but Noah does. Uh, in various, these various indications that Noah has been elevated above the first Adam, and uh, fittingly, the kind of offering that he offers, the ascension offering, uh, signifies that elevation, uh, his, his elevation to uh, uh, role of, as king over the world. 
So they're very, whenever, whenever Abraham sets up an altar, he offers ascension offerings, Olah. Uh, and when he offers uh, Isaac, it's an Olah. Uh, those are the two offerings that are mentioned throughout the book of Genesis, the only two offerings that we know of uh, through, uh, uh, through the patriarchal period. Once the tabernacle is set up, you have a whole new system in uh, lots of different ways. Uh, there's a, a, an entirely new way of approach to God, uh, an entirely new way of offering sacrifice. I say entirely, that's an overstatement. Uh, the original, the offerings that are offered in the book of Genesis continue to be offered in, uh, the, in the, under the Sinai covenant. But uh, there are uh, things that are changed, and even those offerings are, uh, are adjusted in some ways. So what are the new things with Sinai? Uh, and specifically, what are the new kinds of sacrifice? Um, the new things are a new a priesthood. Don't have that before. Uh, Korah uh, is right. Korah is the Levite who objects when Aaron gets special privileges, and he says, we're all priests. And before Sinai, he would have been exactly right. There was no difference between uh, the tribe of Levi and other tribes. There was no difference between Aaron and other members of the tribe of Levi. All of them are priests. But now God has chosen one tribe and one clan within that tribe, and that clan, Aaron and his, uh, one family, Aaron and his descendants, are the only ones who are going to be able to perform priestly duties, which means they're the only ones that go to the altar. They're the only ones that enter into the tabernacle and perform the various, uh, uh, the various ministries that take place in the tabernacle, trimming the wicks of the lampstand, changing out the showbread, offering incense. They're the only ones that could go up to the altar of ascension in the courtyard and bring animal parts onto the altar. So you have this, this, uh, this new cast of priests Hebrews 7 says when there's a change in priesthood, there's a change in law. And it's, it means specifically that when there's a change in priesthood, there's a change in the law of succession. That's the specific focus of Hebrews 7. Uh, how do you know who the next priest is going to be? Uh, well, Sinai introduces a priesthood that's, done, that's uh, reckoned by genealogy, by fleshly means. If you're descendant of Aaron, then you're a priest. Uh, you're, uh, you, you can be a... Part of the priest, you're part of the priestly clan. Uh, but that change of law is broader than just the rules of succession for the priests. There's a lot of changes in procedures and rules governing the presence of God. There's no indication in Genesis about uh, worries about impurity. Uh, Abraham sets up altars and he offers uh, whole burnt offerings or ascension offerings. Uh, and there's nothing said about him having to be in a state of purity or cleanliness. Uh, but once God comes and dwells in the tabernacle, and he comes near, and he uh, has an address at the center of the camp, and he's got a, uh, an address in the Holy Land, a place where he's dwelling, uh, then there's these new, new rules for approach. You have to be in a state of cleanness, which means that you can't have been in a room with a dead body recently. If, you, if, you're, if you've been in a room with a dead body, if you were sitting with your mother when she died, then you can't go to the tabernacle until you go through a week-long process of purification. Uh, corpse defilement now excludes you from access to the, to the Lord's house. 
There's no indication that that was true under, uh, under the patriarchal system. Or a woman who's just had a child uh, is excluded. She's in a state of impurity uh, for 40 or 80 days, depending on whether she has a, a, a male or female child. That, that state of impurity doesn't mean that she uh, is in some kind of isolation hut somewhere outside of uh, her hometown. It means she can't go into the presence of God in the tabernacle. Purity has to do with approach to the, the uh, presence of God. That's, that, that's all new at Sinai. That's, those rules are introduced. Uh, and along with that, there are rules introduced that are pertain to sacrifice. Uh, there are several new sacrifices that are introduced at Sinai that didn't exist, um, that are never mentioned prior to Israel's gathering at Sinai. And some of these are designed specifically to maintain the house of God so that God stays. God has promised to come and remain in his house to be among his people, but his house has to stay, his house has to stay clean, cleansed from impurities and sins. And if it's not, then the Lord will abandon it as he does later on in the Old Testament. And particularly in the book of Ezekiel, we see the Lord uh, pulling up and abandoning his defiled house uh, he's not going to remain in the house where his people, that his people have, uh, has, have corrupted. Uh, but if they do sin, then there are ways to take care of that that are specifically have to do with the uh, pur- purification of the house. It also has to do with the purification of the worshiper, but it's really uh, the, the house that's the focus of these offerings. There's a sin offering, also called a purification offering, that's designed to uh, cleanse impurities and, uh, and remove sins from the person who's a worshiper, but also the person who's worshiping is forgiven by offering the sacrifice. Uh, but the altar is also purified, and the tabernacle is being purified by those sacrifices, um, by, by, the, by the purification offering. Um, another offering is called the trespass offering. Hebrew word is asham. And that's a kind of uh, offering of compensation. If you... Uh, if you um, if you accidentally uh, grab some, uh, some food that was sacrificed, some of the food that's sacrificed belongs to the priests. It's most holy food, and only the priests are supposed to eat it. And if you're not a priest, and you somehow end up with that, and you eat it, then you have committed sacrilege. You've committed a transgression, because you've taken food that belongs to God, that God shares with his priests, doesn't share with anybody else, and you've consumed it. That's, uh, that's a kind of theft. Sacrilege is a kind of theft from God or kind of trespass on God's property. And the asham is a, the offering that compensates for that trespass, compensates for that theft. So uh, the asham is another way of, uh, uh, a way to uh, restore the relationship between the worshiper and God and to maintain God's presence among Israel. Uh, so those are kind of maintenance offerings. I think this, this really the center of the Levitical sacrificial system, the Sinai sacrificial system, is the other new offering, which is the peace offering. Uh, peace offerings are mentioned first, first in uh, Exodus 20 and 24. Um, they're offerings that are first mentioned and introduced at Sinai when Israel is camped at Sinai when the Lord is cutting covenant with his people. 
And then Leviticus introduces, uh, 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 elaborates the ritual for the peace offering in Leviticus 3, and it talks a lot about peace offerings elsewhere in Leviticus. Uh, the unique thing about the peace offering is that it's a meal. It's the one offering that uh, only uh, that that uh, uh, the worshiper himself can uh, eat from. It's a it's a festive offering. The priest gets a portion of the sin offering. Uh, the priest gets a portion of the guilt offering, the trespass offering. He gets a portion, the largest portion of the grain offering. There's a handful of the grain offerings put in the altar. The rest of it goes to the priests. Uh, so they they're eating parts of uh, most of the other offerings, but the worshipers aren't eating any of them except the peace offering. Uh, and that, uh, if you study out how the peace offering, uh, where it where it fits into the uh, the Levitical system, uh, it's evident that the peace offering is the kind of the central uh, focal point of the entire Levitical system. The entire Levit- Levitical system is set up so that people can eat, drink, and rejoice in the presence of God. So they can offer a substitute that will pass through the sword and fire. Uh, that substitute will be uh, enable the worshiper to draw near and, uh, and rejoice before God and be in a kind of restored state, uh, uh, kind of a restoration of Adam's state, uh, eating something uh, eating a meal in the presence of God. Nobody did that between between Adam and Sinai. There's no examples of anybody having a meal in the presence of God. We have a few we have a few scenes. Well, uh, you have uh, you have uh, Abram with the, the the three men who come to visit him. Abram serves them a meal. I don't think Abraham, Abraham, there's no indication Abraham eats with them. You've got some other sacrificial procedures in Genesis where. Uh, you have people that have a meal when they make a covenant with each other. Uh, that's not called a peace offering, and it's not. Uh, it, there's no explicit indication that it's done in the presence of God. Now, the tabernacle is set up. Now, God is opening up His garden again for hospitality, and the way to come near is to offer these sacrifices, and particularly the peace offering. That's the central kind of offering that we have in Leviticus. You can, one indication of that is the just the. Uh, the literary structure of the early chapters of Leviticus. The first three chapters of Leviticus form a single speech. There are three different offerings that are being described, prescribed. Um, But there's only one heading, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, that's in Leviticus 1.1. And then chapter 2, still part of the same speech. Chapter 3, still part of the same speech. Uh, the Lord gives instructions about the uh, ascension offering in chapter 1. gives instructions about the minkah, the tribute offering or grain offering in chapter 2. And then chapter 3 gives uh, instructions about the peace offering. All of that is part of one speech. And I think there's a sequence there, the sequence of, uh, of offerings. This is not the, se- the way that the offerings are actually offered in when they're... Uh, it's, not, it's not laying out a sequence for actual performance of these rituals. But in the literary structure, you have a movement from ascension, tribute to peace. So you have this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, liturgical design with the peace offering being at the climax of this first section of Leviticus. And then uh, the whole sacrificial uh, discussion in Leviticus is the, it occupies the first seven chapters. Uh, and at the culmination of that, you return to the peace offering in chapter 7. 
And there are these fairly elaborate instructions about different sorts of peace offerings. You can offer a peace offering for Thanksgiving, and that has certain rules about when you have to eat it. Uh, you can offer a peace, a peace offering for, as a votive offering to fulfill a vow, and that has different rules for what you do with the meats. Uh, and uh, you have other rules about the peace offerings that the culmination of the entire set of rules of sacrifice. In, in both of these, in the first speech and then in the first set of speeches, they're all moving up toward the peace offering as the kind of climax of the whole system. The whole point of having a, a, a house in the midst of Israel with the Lord dwelling there is so that Israel can commune with the Lord in his house, eat, drink, and rejoice. In other words, sacrifice peace offerings. That's, that's what the whole thing is for. Um, the, the sacrifices also lay out a basic order and structure of worship. Uh, you can, uh, I mentioned the literary order. That's not necessarily the order of performance. Um, if, you, if you think about a peace offering, how was a peace offering performed? You have a peace offering, the, the, uh, the worshiper would bring an animal. Could be a, a, a bovine. That is an animal from the herd cow or a bull. It could be either one. It could be male or female. A peace offering. The ascension offering has to be male. But the peace offering could be male or female. Or you could bring a goat, male or female goat or male or female sheep. He lays his hand on the head of the animal. He's designating the animal as his substitute, as his representative. He's ordaining the animal, as it were, by leaning his hand on the head of the animal. I'm, I'm sending this animal ahead of me through the through the sword and fire of the cherubim, go for it. You know, get me in there. So he lays his hand on the head of the animal, ordaining him to function in this kind of priestly role on his behalf. Then he slaughters the animal, kills the animal. The blood of the animal is sprinkled around on the altar uh, in order to purify and cleanse the altar. And then the uh, animal is dismembered, and the portions of the animal are put in the fire, and the animal is turned to smoke and ascends to the Lord, uh, and then the worshiper takes a section of the animal and gets roasted or gets boiled somewhere in the tabernacle precincts, and he has a meal. Okay. That's the basic flow of a peace offering. And that gives us a kind of skeletal structure for worship, both in the Old Testament and in the New. You have a moment of, uh, of uh, substitutionary death, the animal has to be killed. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a moment of, I uh, think that would correspond in the, in the Christian liturgy with a moment of confession, a moment when we accept the Lord's sentence over us and acknowledge that we deserve death. Uh, the animal is dismembered. Um, in the New Testament, at least, we have uh, dismemberment by a sword, by the sword of the Spirit, in Hebrews 4, the, 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 word is, the Word of God is powerful for dividing between a soul and spirit, between joints and marrow. That sword is a sacrificial sword. The Word of God is a sacrificial sword that cuts us and prepares us to be offered and to ascend to the Lord as a sweet-smelling savor, uh, and then to have a meal. So I think that whole procedure, we have... Uh, we we uh, acknowledge our sinfulness and we acknowledge God's sentence of death in our confession. Uh, the word of God cuts us and 
dismembers us. Uh, we are forgiven and we are reconstituted and we ascend in, I would say, as, as I'll elaborate in just a moment, we ascend in song and in prayer uh, and we're transformed and then we sit at the Lord's table. That whole procedure for the peace offering lays out a kind of, a kind of liturgical procedure uh, that is the fundamental structure of Christian worship. Um, so I think the, the, the Levitical system, although we don't do any of these offerings, the Levitical system is informing us about the mode of approach because that's what these sacrifices are all about. And the God that we worship is still the same God. Uh, we don't approach in exactly the same way, but the basic uh, pattern of approach is still there. I mentioned that uh, the ascent is an ascent in song, and I want to spend the last few minutes of this session talking about that. The New Testament uses the phrase sacrifice of praise, uh, and that's one of the main forms, that's one of the main new covenant forms of sacrifice. So these animal sacrifices, uh, in one sense, the animal sacrifice being turned into smoke, offering its blood, and then being turned into smoke in the, in the altar, uh, that gets fulfilled in the human sacrifice, us, the living sacrifice of praise. Uh, Augustine said on a number of occasions that Old Testament sacrifices are symbolic sacrifices. They're figures of true sacrifice. The true sacrifice is a human sacrifice. That's a point that I made earlier when I said the foundational sacrifice in Genesis 2 is Adam. He's the first one to be wounded and to be divided so that he can be reunited. He's the first sacrificial victim, as it were. It's, there's always human sacrifice at the basis, uh, uh, at the basis of the animal sacrifices. Abram offers Isaac on Mount Moriah, and Mount Moriah becomes the place where the temple's built, where all the animal sacrifices are going to be offered. But they're all based on that um, the substitute uh, for Isaac, uh, and the, the human sacrifice was the uh, was uh, foundational to that. So that's the that's the the figure is animal sacrifice. The reality is sacrifice of ourselves, and one of the ways we sacrifice ourselves, one of the primary ways we sacrifice ourselves in the new covenant is through offering our life's breath in worship. Uh, martyrs offer their lives blood. That's a kind of sacrifice. We offer our life's breath when we sing and pray and offer the sacrifice of praise to God. So that's a, that's a new covenant reality, but that's already beginning in the Old Testament. Uh, David uh, dramatically revises or adds to or enhances the worship of the temple. He doesn't actually build the temple, of course, but he organizes uh, the priests and the worship of uh, Israel, um, reorganizes it. So when the temple is built... The, the, uh, the worship of Israel is very different from what it had been in the tabernacle. There's continuities. The same offerings are being offered, the same animal offerings. You still have an altar. You still have fire. You still have lampstands inside. You still have the table of showbread and all that. Uh, but there's been a, uh, a, uh, uh, an innovative uh, addition, which is the addition of a sacrifice of praise, the addition of music. And a large section of First Chronicles is about David's organization of the Levites and priests uh, as a choir, as an orchestra, to offer this sacrifice of praise. 
So uh, the, the sequence we have is um, animal offerings in, uh, under the Sinai covenant at the, at the tabernacle, animal offerings plus song in the temple, and then in the new covenant, those animal offerings have been fulfilled in the human sacrifice of Jesus, and we participate in that and, uh, and uh, carry on that sacrifice by offering ourselves in song. Uh, and I think that, uh, this, uh, we won't take time to, to think through this entirely, but uh, uh, that connection between uh, animal sacrifice and music, I think, is a very rich and significant one. Um, so the, and that helps us to get some, uh, some handles on thinking about what, what's happening in church when we sing. Singing in church is not for entertainment. Uh, singing in church is not just a matter of uh, elevating our emotions, although as we talked about yesterday, I think that's, that's properly part of our understanding what music does. What's happening in our song is something analogous to what happened with animal offerings in the Old Testament. If what we're offering is a sacrifice of praise and the root of that is these animal offerings, then what happens in our singing is the fulfilled form of what happened with those animal offerings. What did he find? <laughs> listening to me this whole time? Yeah, what does Google say about animal um, so a, a few things, a few aspects of this. And we could, uh, I'll, if you want to follow up on this, I've talked about this, written on this in a, a little book called uh, From Silence to Song. Uh, and then uh, a few additional uh, thoughts about it in my commentary on First and Second Chronicles that came out a couple years ago. Well, one of the things that sacrifices do is to uh, m- memorialize the covenant. Uh, so, uh, it's explicit when it's talking about the uh, the minkah, the uh, the uh, grain offering. Um, the the priest took part of the grain, part of the oil, all of the frankincense, and he placed that onto the altar as a memorial port. That's the memorial portion of the offering. Uh, the memorial portion is not the portion that he holds up so that everyone can see it and think about God's covenant. That's the memorial portion is the portion that's put on the altar. That's the part that ascends to God, and it's a memorial to him, a reminder to him of his covenant and his promise, like the, like the rainbow uh, is a reminder to God of his promise not to send a flood and to destroy the world again but with water. So uh, offerings memorialize, at least the grain offering memorializes. I think all the offerings memorialize. Uh, and that's... Uh, Levitic, uh, Leviticus Chronicles tells us that that's one of the effects of music. We memorialize in song. We're doing the same thing that those grain offerings did. When we sing uh, psalms, for example, of God's great acts in uh, Egypt or his deliverance of Israel from all of, the, uh, all of the dangers of the wilderness, we're raising those memories up before the Lord or memorializing those events before the Lord and calling on him to keep doing that same kind of thing. Keep releasing us from all the Egypts that, we, that your people are in. Keep, keep sustaining us. Keep sending miraculous bread and water in the wilderness if your church is wandering. Uh, 
We're memorializing what God has done so that he will keep doing it, so he'll keep, uh, keep, uh, keep keeping his promise. Uh, offerings are means of assent. I've talked about that already. Uh, the sacrifices are means of assent, especially the ascension offering, as the name indicates. The entire animal is placed on the altar. The entire, entire animal is burned. The entire animal is transformed into smoke and ascends to the Lord in smoke. Uh, and that is done on behalf of the worshiper. The worshiper can't climb into the altar and turn himself into smoke and ascend to the Lord. He could, but uh, he wouldn't be around anymore because he'd be smoke and ashes. So he sends an animal to do that. The animal is doing that on the worshiper's behalf, and the ascent is taking place through the offering of that animal. Uh, and there are indications in Chronicles, again, that that same reality is occurring in our song, we raise our, our, our voices as a sweet-smelling sound that's analogous to the sweet-smelling savor of the, of the offerings. Uh, our song is a means of ascending to the Lord, a means of joining in with the heavenly hosts. That's why in our Vesper service, what well, we did in, in uh, uh, Matins too, we had a, we had a Te Deum. Right? We're joining with uh, all of the martyrs and all of the uh, apostles uh, and uh, joining with the, the hosts of heaven, do it in vespers with the sanctus. We're, we're joining in the song of the angels uh, when, we, uh, uh, when we sing. That's a real ascent and joining of heaven and earth that occurs in our worship. Uh, and song is a, a sacrifice of praise is our means for ascending and being in the Lord's presence, for joining ourselves to that heavenly host in God's throne room. So you can think through other aspects of sacrifice and uh, think about how those other aspects of sacrifice might be fulfilled in song. I think there are a lot of analogies to think about. But let me end with a couple of, couple of uh, applications of that idea. If this is right, if, if the new covenant form of sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise and song, if that's the primary form it takes, uh, then we could ask the question, we, or make the point up, I'm going to make the point. Let's just say I'm going to make the point, all right, uh, that our song, song should be as central and pervasive, all-pervasive in Christian worship as sacrifice was in Israel's worship. If, that's, if those two things are analogous, and of course, Israel's worship was entirely a matter of sacrifice. And if that's the pattern for our sacrifice of praise, for our musical sacrifice, then uh, we should ha have the same kind of prominence, music should have the same kind of prominence in our worship as sacrifice did in the Old Covenant, because this is our form of sacrifice. Uh, the other thing that this, um, this gets, in, that gets into church budget issues uh, and uh, selection of personnel in a church, um, if, if this analogy is right, then... Uh, we well, already in, in in the Davidic period, David has musical specialists, trained uh, instrumentalists among the Levites, trained singers among the Levites, under the hand of various conductors. They make a living singing. They make a living playing instruments. Uh, there's some Levites that make a living, not offering sacrifice at the altar, or doing other services in the, uh, in, the, in, the in the temple, but they make their living doing music. 
accompanying the offerings of animals with song and with instrumental music. Um, that, I think, suggests something about uh, our selection of, uh, of, of church staff. If music is our, the, the form that our sacrifice of praise takes, and if our sacrifice of praise should be, have the same kind of prominence as Old Testament sacrifice had in, uh, animal sacrifice had in Israel, uh, then we should have the same kind of uh, focus, put the same kind of resources, have the same kind of, uh, have the same kind of attention to our music uh, as they had to sacrifice or uh, as much attention to music as the Levitical priests gave to music in the Old Covenant. Uh, we need specialists, okay? Uh, you can have a lot of good musicians in a church, but if you don't have somebody leading the music in the church, uh, there's, no, there's no focus. You know, if you don't have a leader, you don't have any leadership. Kind of, kind of tautology, but that's true. There are churches that have a lot, of, a lot of excellent musicians, but there's no vision for what the music is supposed to be doing in the church. No vision for training children to learn to sing, to learn to chant psalms so that they can grow up and get to the age of 15 and know every single psalm by heart, be able to sing them. Uh, uh, if you don't have somebody devoted to musical ministry in a church, then it's hard to accomplish things like that. Now, like as with, uh, as with liturgical architecture, uh, this kind of thing takes money and it takes prioritization, but I think uh, we should take to heart what, uh, particularly what the Book of Chronicles shows us with David, and he, he prioritizes musical worship, and uh, we should take that to heart, and that should certainly be part of the mix of our considerations as we're thinking about staffing and budgeting and so on, uh, because music is uh, a, uh, a central part of our, uh, our uh, sacrifice of praise in the New Covenant. All right, I've kept you here an awfully long time, so I'm going to stop there and give you a break, and then uh, we'll take time for questions at the beginning of the session. Take about 20 minutes. Give yourself some extra time since I tortured you so long. <laughs>